Ask not what your country can do for you. There's a last time I'm going to be in the lead. The Giants have the Peter, oh, you little mouse, so won't you go away? One ringy-dingy. Hand off to Griffin, cracks the middle, gets the five. Touchdown, Ohio State. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plane. I'm interested to know, Gracie, who's your choice? Need you ask, George. Time now for spinning my dad's vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Vaccarello. Thanks, sweetie. And thank you for tuning into episode 28 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. It was a movie for the ages. Cinematic history and how it was filmed and how many extras were required. The 1959 epic had the largest budget, over $15 million, as well as the largest sets built of any film produced at the time. And the score was just as large. So, get ready for big music from the big screen in Volume 28, Ben-Hur. Now, I'll be using the album's extensive liner notes and the included hardbound book for this episode. Prelude places the listener immediately in the atmosphere of the period of Ben-Hur. After the opening motif, which appears later in the picture in all the places connected with the Christ, the Christ theme appears majestically, underlining that this is a tale of the Christ. Throughout the picture, every time the Christ appears or his name is mentioned, the sound of an organ is heard, which then becomes associated with him. The heroic Ben-Hur theme follows, and then the love theme of Ben-Hur and Esther. The victorious Ben-Hur theme returns, and the prelude ends strongly with the opening motif.
there is the prelude to the movie. Okay, why this album? Well, I thought it was an interesting part of my dad's collection. The album is in a nice box, and there's a hardbound book uh, that is included that has some interesting movie notes in it, so we're going to actually start with that right now. For 80 years, the story of Ben-Hur has never been out of print. Probably no other novel has ever had such influence on so many millions around the world. In the title, Ben-Hur, there seems to be the magic that stirs the heart and uplifts the soul. About once every 20 years since 1880, Ben-Hur has roared over the literary and theatrical horizon to create a new global furor. All of this began when a man of war decided to write about the Prince of Peace. In the eyes of critics, he was not a great writer. By his own admission, he was not deeply a deeply religious man. Yet, as he wrote seated under a beech tree in Crawfordsville, Indiana, his pen dipped into purple ink. There must have come to him some inspiration, some force must have formed his thoughts and shaped his words. How else can one explain the appeal of his novel, completed some eight years later? How else could he have composed a story that, as one literary historian reported, quote, brought millions to their feet to cheer and more millions to their knees to pray, unquote. General Lew Wallace, flamboyant hero of the Civil War, lived a fantastic life. He could have written about his adventures on the battlefields. He could have found a novel in his contact with Billy the Kid and other desperados who ruled the territory of New Mexico during his days as governor of that frontier territory. He might have written exotic tales of his days as U.S. minister to Turkey. But he chose to let his thoughts roam from the tranquility of his Indiana home to the Holy Land, which he had never seen, thousands of miles and thousands of years away. He selected the turbulent times of the pagan Roman Empire and that period of history which influenced all mankind, the years between the birth of Christ and his crucifixion. General Wallace, always an optimist, told his wife back in 1880 that it was quite possibly Ben-Hur would provide them with as much as $100 a year in royalties. He lived to see his book return greater royalties than any other novel had ever earned. There came a time when he negotiated a million-dollar deal for the stage rights and his heirs arranged another million-dollar contract for the silent screen rights. Since Wallace's death in 1905, Ben-Hur has become recognized as one of the most valuable theatrical properties in the history of show business, and today Ben-Hur has become a bestseller once again. No less than a dozen publishers now have new editions of the novel on bookshelves and in the libraries. For years, General Wallace refused to permit dramatization of his book, He finally yielded in November 1899, Claw and Erlinger revealed to a startled, cheering Broadway the first stage production of Ben-Hur. For 20 years, the play ran on and on, touring hundreds of American cities and circling the globe. The original two chariots on treadmills became five, then eight chariots. Numerous Ben-Hurs and Masalas played the leads, beginning with William Farnham and William S. Hart, long before they became film stars. Wherever Ben-Hur played, there was a frenzied response. Babies were named for the hero of the day. Merchandise adopted Ben-Hur as a trade name. Schools studied the book. Churches heard sermons on it. In 1926, the silent screen version of Ben-Hur again made theater history. The lavish $4 million production was a milestone in the development of the screen. That picture might still be running if talking pictures had not replaced the silent screen. 
Now all that is happening again. A great wave of interest in Ben-Hur is sweeping the nation and the world. With the modern magic of the motion picture art, Ben-Hur promises to reach a new pinnacle in public acclaim. All right, let's learn about our next song, the love theme of Ben-Hur. Esther is the daughter of Simonides, steward of the house of Hur, therefore a slave, property of Ben-Hur. She is promised in marriage to a wealthy merchant, and Ben-Hur reluctantly gives his consent. He soon realizes, however, that she has always been in love with him and finds that he is not indifferent to her. The love theme has an oriental coloring and accompanies their relationship throughout the picture. And there is the love theme from Ben-Hur. 
All right, let's learn about the album on this episode. It's Miklos Roja, Ben-Hur, on the MGM Records label, MGM Records number 1EI. Its a format is box set, deluxe edition, vinyl LP stereo, was released in 1959. Its genre is stage and screen, style, soundtrack, and score. Some great liner notes, like I said, I've been reading them uh, for the intro of each of the songs, but let's read the introduction that was written by the composer. The music for Ben-Hur was not my first musical excursion into Roman antiquity, as I already paid a visit there with Quo Vadis and Julius Caesar. In Quo Vadis, I had tried to recreate the music of the first century Romans using fragments from contemporary Greek, Hebrew, and other Oriental sources, as nothing Roman has survived. And in Julius Caesar, I was primarily trying to underline musically the Shakespearean drama in which Rome only serves as a background. Ben-Hur, with its sweeping human drama, personal conflict, and flamboyant pageantry, needed music which grew out naturally from its atmosphere and became an integral part of it. I was fortunate enough to be connected with it from its very conception. All the music which is used on scene, such as the marches and dances, I wrote in Rome. For inspiration, I walked long afternoons in the Forum Romanum and on the Capitoline and Palatine Hills, imagining the old splendor of the buildings, which are in ruins now, and the excitement of the thronging multitude in flowing togas, in the Circus Maximus, where I wrote the music for the circus and victory parades. I don't know what the children thought who were playing football in the grounds where once the great circus stood about a strange-looking man who was wildly beating time, goose-stepping to his own whistling and making quick notes in a little book, but I detected from their looks that they must have thought that this is another of those loony foreigners who go berserk on seeing the places of glorious Roman past, past and which impress the present-day inhabitants of Rome very little. <laughs> that would have been interesting to watch. Okay, the Discogs value, uh, the lowest at $1.28, highest at $16.55, and the median at $8. I found a copy on eBay for $11.95 and a copy on Amazon for $10.62. Now, my dad's copy is actually in pretty good shape. It's got some regular wear and tear of it just, you know, normally being pulled in, pulled out of a record collection. The album itself isn't to hissy covers in pretty good shape the book that comes with it by the way is in pretty good shape as well i think i will value my dad's copy at a dollar fifty all right let's move back to the music the rowing of the galley slaves the new commander of the Roman fleet, Quintus Arius, wishes to test the rowing ability of the galley slaves and puts them through a test. They start at normal speed and go on to battle, attack, and ramming speeds as the hortator pounds out the rhythm. As the speed accelerates, many collapse and become hysterical, and the music grows from the monotonous beat of the hortator to an orchestral frenzy. And death struggle fills the air, and the music tries to mirror the excitement horror, and brutality of these scenes.
I watched that scene in preparation for this episode. Such an intense scene. The Rowing of the Galley Slaves. All right, let's read about the composer Miklos Roja and his contribution to the film. More than two years of research preceded the writing of the music score for Ben-Hur, two years of delving through the musty files of the libraries of the world. Written and conducted by the world-famous Dr. Miklos Roja, the score adheres to the musical knowledge of Ben-Hur's day, in many cases using the homophonious chants of the early Greeks and Romans in which everything is played or sung in unison. One of the great problems was to make the music sound archaic without being grating to the ear. It took 72 hours and 12 recording sessions to translate the score to the screen, and it emerges the longest ever composed for a motion picture. It was recorded in six-channel stereophonic sound by the 100-piece MGM Symphony Orchestra under the baton of Dr. Roja. The score, which embraces a wide range of composition, is notable for many moods, especially the marches, three of which were composed for the production. One is played during the triumphal entry of the Roman legions into Jerusalem. One is background for the victory march of Quintus Arius into Rome. The third is a prelude to the thrilling chariot race. Greek and Sicilian melodies form the basis for these compositions. While Dr. Rocha made no deliberate attempt to compose thematic phrases for the various characters in Ben-Hur, he did create a love theme for harp and flute introduced at the first meeting of Ben-Hur and Esther. Another highly effective use of instrumentation is the transition from full orchestra to organ during the sequences in which the Christ appears. The rare and unusual score is being recorded in both stereo and monaural albums. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Records alone has issued three separate albums with Rocha conducting. And obviously, this is one of them. All right, let's move on to the next song. Naval Battle. Macedonian pirates attack the Roman fleet. First flamethrowers and arrows whistle through the air from ship to ship. Some of the galleys are rammed, and hand-to-hand fighting develops between the pirates and Romans. The galley slaves are chained to their benches. Their panic and death struggle fills the air, and the music tries to mirror the excitement, horror, and brutality of these scenes.
music from the naval battle. And you can tell from that music just how intense that scene actually was. All right, time now for this episode's interesting side note, and it has to do with the massive amount of people they needed to hire for this movie. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer opened a casting office in Rome in mid-1957 to select the more than 50,000 persons who would appear in Ben-Hur. Literally from the far corners of the world came the men, women, boys, and girls who appeared in front of the six cameras used to film the spectacular story. Of the many thousands finally selected, a total of 365 had to speak lines. 45 were considered sufficiently important to be listed as principals. The names of those in top roles read like United Nations Roll Call. Only four of the stars, Heston, Miss Scott, Miss O'Donnell, and Jaffe, were born in the United States or had worked in Hollywood. The others came from such widely separated places as Israel, North Wales, Australia, Ireland, England, Austria, and Italy. Among those with small but important roles are such varied personalities as Claude Heater, a Californian who has gained fame singing with leading opera companies in Europe, Count Mario Rivatelli, whose great-great-grandfather invented the revolver, Tom O'Leary, a Puxtatawney, Pennsylvanian youth who has been studying opera in Italy, Tabira Mitri, one-time heavyweight boxing champion of Europe, Tudi Lemko, a famous Norwegian ballet dancer, and this list goes on. Members of Rome's aristocracy lined up for work and with every day bringing at least a count or a baroness to the casting office door. They were ready and waiting when director Weiler decided he wanted genuine patricians to portray guests at an elaborate party. Among those that answered the call were princes, princesses, dukes, duchesses, and the like of royalty. Weiler's determination not to have a clash of accents resulted in his decision to use only Britishers to portray ancient Romans, with Americans for the most part taking the roles of the Hebrews. Days before each big scene was scheduled to go before the cameras, the casting department began notifying extras, all of whom had been cataloged previously. The problems became obvious when it is considered that more than 85% of those who applied had no telephone by which they could be contacted, and many had no address, but it merely indicated that they could be reached through such and such a friend. As the mob extras were engaged, they were placed in the charge of a more experienced extra who thereafter would be responsible for getting those in his group to work on time. It was also his duty to see that his unit, usually 30 in number, moved in and out of makeup promptly. Some 30 water boys in costumes circulated among the extras to ladle out water in plastic cups with which each extra was supplied. In order to handle the large mobs of people without confusion, more than 15,000 alone for the chariot race, it was necessary for the first unit to move into wardrobe not later than 5 in the morning, and often the last group would not be cleared until 10 at night. For the comfort and convenience of those extras and bit players, the studio built and maintained a high-speed restaurant, which at its peak fed 5,000 extras in 20 minutes. All right, on to the next song. The Victory Parade is given by the Emperor Tiberius for the returning naval hero Arius. He rides proudly in a chariot, Ben-Hur at his side, while the Roman band, composed of ancient instruments, play a stirring welcome to the returning hero.
there is Victory Parade. I went back to look at some of the scenes from the movie in relation to the music on this album. The movie was so powerful, and Miklos Rocha did a masterful job of not letting the music get in the way of the scene, but somehow he made it better. And it's interesting that one of the most famous scenes in cinematic history, the chariot race, had no music behind it except to introduce it and until the very end. All right, now on to our last piece, the miracle and finale. There is a storm after the death of Christ, and as Miriam, Ben-Hur's mother, and his sister seek shelter from the raging elements in a cave and ponder over the death of Christ, they suddenly realize that they are cured of the curse of leprosy. As the blood of the Christ mingles from the cross with the water of the surging river, symbolically washing clean the sins of the world, the Christ theme now appears triumphantly with a chorus. Ben-Hur sadly returns home from cavalry, profoundly moved by the tragedy of the scene and the last gentle words of the Christ. He sees his mother and sister who are clean again. Their faith has cured them. They embrace in joy, and as shepherd as as a shepherd passes with his flock under the empty crosses of Golgotha, a chorus sings, "Alleluia."
the miracle and finale of the epic Hollywood film from 1959, Ben-Hur. Now, if you get a chance to look at this collection and this book specifically, make sure you check out the page Random Revelations. I need to read this one for you. Many women in Italy gave their hair for Ben-Hur. More than 400 pounds were assembled at Cinecita's studios to be made into wigs and beards required by the thousands of people taking part in the production. Most of the hair came from the peasant women of Upper Piedmont, natives of this mountainous district, long famous for their fine hair for centuries, have been selling their locks to wig makers of the world. <laughs> Thought you might enjoy that last little piece there. So... Thanks for tuning into Volume 28, Ben-Hur, However You Did. If you want more information about this podcast, head over to SpinningMyDad'sVinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops with Volume 29, Golden Memories of Radio, Part 2. Until then, go with the flow, my friends.